Let's go to lecture eight. The title is Bills of the Goldsmith, the new protagonist in the uh, greatest uh, story ever told. And I dedicate this lecture to the memory of Karl Menger. He was born in 1840 and died in 1921. He was a monetary scientist of Austrian origin, Austrian both in the sense of nationality and also in the sense of being the founder of the what today is known the Austrian school of economics. He, in my opinion, is the greatest economist of all time, certainly on the same level as Adam Smith. Uh, and uh, he is the author of the book which was translated into English under the title Principles of Economics. It's a slim volume, a lot of books on economics are heavy, you can kill a bull with them, but uh, I think Menger was a wonderful author. You can kill a student's curiosity. Wow. <laughs> That's what they were designed for. But Menger is different, and uh, I can recommend it. It is available in in the United States. I don't know exactly where, but if you look around the internet, there's this uh, Amazon. Uh, I'm sure you will be able to get a copy. Uh, and his theory of the origin of money is part of that book. And uh, he bases this origin on the evolution of marketability of goods. Let's say marketability of a certain good is measured by the spread, the difference between the bid price and the ask price in the market. There's a market for this good could be horses, could be cars, could be anything, including investment products. And the seller is stating, oh yeah, the, normally when you think of markets, you think of buying. You go to the store, there's a fixed price, you pay, and that's it, and the price, what you pay is the market price. Um, Menger said this wasn't the case at all. In the markets, real market, there are two prices, the ask price and the bid price. And the market maker who makes these deals states both. And uh, the ask price is always higher than the bid price. In other words, the market maker tries to buy at the lower price and sell at the higher. And everybody else has to buy at the higher price and sell at the lower price. And that's how markets work. And uh, Karl Menger 
talks about the marketability of goods. And the marketability is measured by the difference. Asked price less bid price. So when you go to the market and you want to find the best uh, buy or best, the, the most efficient market maker, you don't ask about prices, you ask about spreads. And that applies to buying gold and silver, by the way. Uh, you might be confused that uh, different dealers post different prices. And of course, if you ask the dealer, I'm interested in your spread, at what price are you buying and what price are you selling? the dealer will not be happy to tell you this <laughs> because this will give away. Of course, if he's a good one, then he will probably say, I have the smallest spread in the country. Come to me and i give you a, a dandy good deal. Uh, but uh, most, in most cases, you have to find this out on your own and that's the way to do it. You ask for the spread. So this concept of marketability of goods is very important. In fact it's so important that this, this is the way how Carl Menger explained the uh, evolution of certain goods, gold and silver, as monetary commodities. Over a period of time, could be centuries or several centuries, uh, people found out that even if they don't need gold and silver as such, but if they supply the market, they sell they will be better off if they accept uh, gold or silver. And this is under the conditions of barter. Remember, the question is, market is not terribly efficient, and people found out through trial and error that their best bet is to exchange their surplus for a good which has the smallest spread because then they can turn around and offer this good in exchange for whatever they have a deficit and they need to buy. So if you think it over you find this very reasonable and as it happened that over a period of time the marketability of gold and silver uh, snowballed. They became by uh, far, uh, far and away more marketable than any other good, which meant that they could be exchanged at a very small spread. So I'm just. Uh, quoting one sentence from Menger, since I dedicate this uh, lecture to his memory. 
The differences in the degree of marketability is of the highest significance for the theory of money. The failure to recognize this is one of the essential causes of the backward state of monetary theory. The theory of money necessarily presupposes a theory of marketability of goods. So you see he wrote that in, uh, at the end of the 19th century and if anything monetary theory is even more backward today. <laughs> <laughs> backward in days than a theory. <laughs> but I think if you register this fact in your mind, even if you don't find this fact confirmed in the markets that uh, that uh, gold and silver trade at the smallest spread, so they are the, they, they, this is what makes them a monetary commodity. And it is true that in many cases you won't find that confirmed by the markets. This is because the governments uh, and the central banks try to falsify this. And there are various ways of doing that. One is to uh, tax uh, the, uh, the, put a sales tax on, on, on the uh, sale of gold and silver. Now, of course, there are 50 states in the Union and every one of them has a different sales tax and different policy. In Europe, by and large, there is a uniformity that gold is recognized uh, by practically all European governments as money. They are not fighting the market. They accept the fait accompli. This is the way it is. Let's just accept it. And that means uh, that uh, you can uh, trade gold more advantageously than silver because silver they don't recognize as uh, money and therefore they put uh, the tax on it, sales tax which they call VAT, value added tax in Europe. That's what you find in Europe. Now as I say in the States and Canada it's different. I understand in Montreal the, it's uh, no tax on gold and no, silver. Physical. Physical buying? Physical. No, no And silver? Same thing. Oh, so you see here is the province of Quebec, way, in, way ahead of the rest of the <laughs> pack, because I think in Toronto, which is the financial center of Canada, they put a tax on, on uh, silver. And also, on some coins, but I'm not sure, perhaps our Canadian friends will be in a position to give you better guidance than I can. Yes? I bought gold and silver bullion with no tax. Where? Which province? In Ontario, in Toronto. Uh -huh. So either the guy's being nice or it's true. I'm sure uh, gold, I'm pretty sure gold is no tax. Silver, I was never charged any tax, but I didn't buy um, these numismatic coins, they may be considered taxable, but bullion mm -hmm. itself, as yeah. far as I know, is safe. British Columbia, 100% pure bullion, gold or silver is tax-free, but uh, some of the... Silver? 
Yes, gold or silver. Silver some as of well. The, some, of the mer some of the coin dealers will charge for junk silver coins, the old um, uh -huh. uh, pre-1966 coins. Some of them will charge a sales tax on that. Since that's on, 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 the, on, the on the valid, but these are still... Money. Yes. It's Canadian money. Yes. It should be on the <laughs> How can you yeah. tax money? Yeah. Well, I will Easy. say most of these rules are meant to confuse the issue. So you just have to cut through this maze of different uh, rules and so on. The other thing is they change the rules very often. So on the top of the complication, which uh, comes from the fact that there are these rules, they uh, even change them. So uh, when we say that gold is the most marketable commodity and silver is possibly the second, but uh, that may not be true. We refer to a wholesale market. You, are, you know very well if you buy uh, gold in larger amounts, then you get a better spread and so on. So, uh, as I say, theoretically what we insist is true, but in practice there is a great variation and that should not confuse us because I think that's beyond dispute that gold, you cannot beat the marketability of gold. So now we come to a section of our story, the second greatest story ever told. And that assumes that we already have the discount house. Our old friend, the cloth uh, dealer, uh, changed profession. He sold his cloth business and went into trading papers, and he did that very successfully. So the discount house was open to business for all trades, not just the cloth and the baker, but all the others, including the goldsmith. Uh, <laughs> the goldsmith, like all the others, uh, traders would uh, buy his gold from the gold miner, uh, or wholesaler, and then there were jewelers and so on. So uh, that was just one of the number of businesses which uh, generated bill circulation. But then traders at the discount house noticed that the bills drawn on and accepted by the goldsmith behaved quite differently from bills generated by the production of other type of uh, consumer goods. Although they were, just as any other bill, originally maturing in 91 days, they were coming back to the goldsmith after only a few weeks or even a few days of circulation. Well, as you recall, a bill is endorsed on the back. You, if you come into possession of a bill and you want to use it for the payment, of some debt, then you endorse it on the back. So after a time, there are a number of signatures on the back of the bill. 
and this means that you, when you endorse it, you transfer the right of collecting the face value at maturity to the next fellow. And if he uh, turns around and use uses the same bill for paying debts, then he does the same. Now, what happened was that the Goldsmith bill also went into circulation, but the back of the bill filled up with signature much, much faster so that once there was no more room for another signature, the fellow who possessed that bill just had to go to the uh, goldsmith and ask him to give him a fresh one because he was having a problem making payments with that. So, uh, even long before the maturity, the bill came back to the goldsmith, not because there was anything wrong with the bill per se, but simply because of this technical problem of running out of space for further endorsement. So, uh, this, this was an interesting observation uh, that uh, the market, people in general, treated the uh, goldsmith's bill differently from others. They found it more convenient. Presumably what happened was that the, uh, everybody who's offered the bill in payment was very happy to accept it and if he had a choice he said, okay, give me the goldsmith bill. I prefer that to the other guy's bill. Not because the other guy had poor credit. That wasn't it. It was because he knew that there, there's just no question asked when the goldsmith bill was offered in payment. Everybody was happy to accept it. So, when the back of the bill was filled up with signatures, it had to be returned to the goldsmith who substituted another one with a clean back. But this was a nuisance still, right? That you had a problem with your perfectly good means of payment. And the, our friend, the manager of the discount house, made a suggestion to the goldsmith that let's try something here and see how it works. So, and well, let's just review this for a moment that the goldsmith bill originated in this transaction that let's say the gold mine, the gold miner delivered uh, uh, gold in gold dust or whatever this is not important for our purposes to the to the goldsmith and built him and the bill was accepted by the goldsmith under his signature and then it became a circulating instrument which the market uh, treated with preferential uh, acceptance because they liked it it was it. so uh, the um, manager of the discount house 
suggested it to the goldsmith that he should talk to the gold miner that next time when he uh, builds him uh, just uh, add one sentence to the face of the bill say payable to bearer on demand and that does away with the uh, this nuisance of, of endorsing because it was it was uh, accepted uh, very quickly no uh, hanky panky and uh, people could look after their own business so that simplified payment and the uh, goldsmith followed the advice and it was working quite well, uh, people were happy to accept this particular bill with a difference that the, there was no more mention of the fellow to whom, by name, to whom the bill was payable. So this innovation eliminated the necessity of endorsing and the goldsmith bearer bills were taken in and paid out almost with the same ease as gold coins. Then the goldsmith made a second interesting discovery. Now his bearer bills kept coming home late. What that means is after they matured. Now normally uh, other traders when their bill falls due, they are on the same day at the latest they are presented and uh, people demand cash. In the case of the goldsmith, however, it was a little different because sometimes the bill came back one day late, two day late, even a week late and uh, that suggested that the market found this means of payment very useful and uh, very easy to, uh, to use for payments uh, so much so that the bill circulated very fast. So fast indeed that there was no point in, in calculating and collecting the discount because that, that was subject to discount all the same as all the others. The, the same discount rate, uh, you had to calculate the number of days to maturity and multiplied by the prevailing discount rate and then getting the small change for the discount. But if you have that bill only for a day because then you pass it on to someone else or even a fraction of the day then the calculated discount will be so small that it's not worth your uh, while to bother calculating and collecting it and that's what happened and when this happens then you don't even pay too much attention what the maturity date is because for your purposes it's, it's immaterial well eventually somebody noticed that this is overdue and then of course got the gold coin for it but that was an interesting observation that the market treated the goldsmith bill when people ended the day of uh, 
uh, the business day, they went through every bill in their portfolio and separated out the goldsmith bill because that was different. That That's almost like gold. It circulates with the same ease as gold coins. So that was the discovery what the goldsmith made. Now, his bearer bills kept coming home late and this was completely unknown in the experience of other merchants, some of whom tried unsuccessfully to imitate the goldsmith in issuing bearer bills, payable to bearer on demand. It worked for the goldsmith, but didn't work for anybody else. So uh, this was the uh, experience. As most people were holding the goldsmith's paper only for a fraction of the day, they, don't, they didn't bother calculating and charging the negligible discount due on them. The goldsmith paper mostly changed hands at face value. There's no discounting involved. If face value was $10,000, people were happy to accept it at face value. Perhaps not everybody, but statistically this is how it worked out, that a certain number of people just didn't want to bother. Okay, the goldsmith uh, paper changed hands at face value. In effect, the market segregated the bills according the acceptor was the goldsmith or someone else. The goldsmith bearer bills were no longer treated as an earning asset, which they were, considering their origin, but for the purposes of people who uh, used them in trade, they didn't find this important, that it's basically an earning asset, and they treated it as a surrogate of the gold coin. It's a substitute which uh, is uh, in practice um, a very good substitute and makes trade easier. In fact, um, uh, carrying it is easier and a lot of other advantages which you don't have to go into. So these bills circulated very fast, even faster than the gold coin itself. Other bills were circulating much more slowly as they were sought after mainly as an earning asset. But the goldsmith bill circulated as a means of exchange. These are two different purposes, but both circulated but in a different way. And. Uh, Uh, we know that the earning asset was important for many traders, especially whose business was seasonal in character because when they were entering their slow season, they were looking forward to get those earning assets. So those of them didn't have any particular preference for the uh, goldsmith bill, although if they have had them, they were happy to keep them because they could insist on the right of collecting if you, they had long, held long enough the uh, goldsmith bill. Now, the promotion of the goldsmith's paper was a spontaneous development. There's no coercion whatsoever. 
It had no roots in legislation or government patent or monopoly or lobbying activities of the Goldsmith Guild. It was not involved at all. The reason was different. A bill considered more marketable if the drawer stands closer to the head of line waiting for the consumer to release his gold coin. And if you compare all the bills in circulation, the Goldsmith bill was at the head of the line. That had the first call on the gold coin. Thus the bill was thus the bill drawn on the cloth merchant was more marketable than the one drawn on the weaver. Well we have discussed this earlier, which in turn was more marketable than the bill drawn on the spinner. But now if you compare bills of different traders then uh, you will you found that the goldsmith bill was more marketable than any other of the, these bills which were generated by trade that was uh, rooted in the maturing consumer good on the way to the consumer. So the bill drawn on the goldsmith was more marketable than any other one for the simple reason that the goldsmith was working with the very material out of which the standard of value was made, gold. So there's no real mystery in this, but uh, it took time to, for this fact to sink in. Soon enough people were making new demands on the goldsmith that were quite unrelated to his trade. Those who had to make several smaller payments but had only one large bill in their possession, but you can imagine this happened very often, that you owned a large bill, say $100,000, but you had to make small payments. Now you had a problem because you can't expect your partner to come up with change. So then these people went to the goldsmith and they asked the goldsmith to break their large bill to smaller ones. And of course they were willing to pay consideration to him for this uh, service. And uh, Guess what? The goldsmith was happy to uh, comply. <laughs> this was uh, an extra income that his business generated. So, <clears throat> after a time, the goldsmith, perhaps again on the advice from the uh, from our friend, the manager of the discount house, who formerly was the. Uh, I think he's thinking on his own by now. <laughs> I'm getting the sense that he's thinking the ball. <laughs> thinking at night. <laughs> he started issuing his bills in standard denominations. Well, what's the sense of issuing a bill for 15,500 and whatever amount? 
when nobody ever uh, would uh, need uh, this particular amount for payment because its uh, chances are very small. But if it was in standard denominations, then it it would be convenient. So the what the goldsmith did was he issued. Uh, his bills in standard denomination. These were bearer bills, payable to bearer on demand, $100,000, $500,000, say, and uh, he balanced this. This is a liability when you issue bills, and you have to balance this liability uh, by having assets of the same value. So he balanced this liability on his book by ha having those large bills of other merchants which he had and uh, uh, held until maturity, in which, at which time he would get the gold coin or, uh, or buy other bills and so on. So in other words, this started uh, <laughs> resembling a bank, but this was honest. <laughs> okay. This was honest. You see, we'll see lots of examples of banking which were dishonest, but this was honest because the, 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 he was not forcing his own paper. People begged him to issue these uh, bearer notes, they don't want to bother with discounting, the calculating and collecting the discount. And they preferred standard round figures as denomination. That this was the demand. And he just met an existing and a reasonable demand. And he did it in a perfectly honest way because he, uh, he substituted, uh, he had the assets assets were and maturities were also matching perfectly. So th there was no difficulty about that. Uh, in an unrelated development, the goldsmith dropped the maturity date on his standard denomination bills. Uh, now, you might question that. But the fact is that the market accepted it and he, uh, he saved costs. I don't mind if you reprimand the goldsmith for dropping the maturity <laughs> date. Because in a way you could argue that uh, perhaps he was just uh, pushing his luck too far. Uh, but I would like to draw your attention to the important difference, which is this. Remember when I started the first lecture, I mentioned that the fable how paper money came into existence is an incredible fable, uh, uh, story, which I, for one, find very hard to swallow. Namely, that the goldsmith went into business with the intention of defrauding the people. He would issue uh, fictitious gold uh, certificates. This is to certify 
that there is on deposit so much gold when there is in fact there was no gold. He just wanted to take advantage of the fact that his, his uh, bills tended to overstay. They could circulate after maturity. So this was definitely a fraud and what is incredible is that for hundreds and hundreds of years people have been victimized one after the other by the goldsmith and nobody said ouch let's go to court and sort this out I find this incredible now my story which is just from my imagination. I, I have no proof. I can't uh, give you, show you documents that that's what happened. I'm just assuming that this would fit the uh, the uh, type of behavior I'm used to. That people don't like to be cheated. They don't like to be defrauded, and they don't mind going to court and challenge if somebody has such a blatant. Uh, violation of a contract that he issues fictitious uh, certificates you know so um, I am offering an alternative explanation how the goldsmith's business became banking business through at least more honest uh, transformation than what is suggested by the existing literature which I find uh, unacceptable. So I'm not trying to to make a case and, and defend these uh, no. goldsmiths. You, you, you're, you're telling us he started out an honest man. <laughs> <laughs> so take your pick. Do you believe the fable that the, uh, the goldsmith had an original sin uh, <laughs> of uh, defrauding everybody, yeah. not just some, yeah. one business partner, but everybody. <coughs> and this is again Lincoln's dictum that uh, you cannot uh, cheat all the people all of the time. You can cheat some, some of the time, or mo even most of the time. So I'm just offering this to you. That is my explanation how the goldsmith's business evolved into banking. And it was not necessarily dishonest all the way. It was probably honest. And uh, actually, in a future lecture tomorrow, I'm going to explain where, very, very precisely, I'll pinpoint where the dishonesty came in. Uh, so, so don't take me as a naive professor who uh, accepts uh, or, or has a uh, has a uh, agenda to whitewash the goldsmith who doesn't deserve to be whitewashed. I have no vested interest. I just find this a more acceptable story, and I think it's important to find out where actually the fraud was committed and I'm going to do that. I'm just introducing this. Uh, if you like you can discuss it, express your own feeling and opinion about that. That's the way I see it. 
and uh, and uh, perhaps we'll never know because for some reason you know much older documents are available in museums in Venice in Florence in Genoa in various Italian states much older bills of exchange but where are the goldsmiths bills of exchange from the 16th 17th century you know uh, I, uh, people who write about these things, they don't document it. Whereas earlier, the early story of the real bill circulation can be very, very well documented. And uh, those are very interesting studies. Uh, um, uh, I guess we are all too old to go into that, but for young people to start and go into Venice or Florence and dig out those old, you know, uh, long, long matured uh, bills of exchange and, and uh, trying to make sense of the pictures like jigsaw puzzle, the very interesting uh, topic of research. All right. So, the market process promoting the bill of the goldsmith to become the most marketable paper in the bill market was analogous to the market process that had earlier promoted gold to, became, to become the most marketable good in the commodity market. And that question, as I pointed out, was studied by Karl Menger in his very important uh, book, uh, the principles of economics, and he also has a paper which was published at the end of the 19th century on the origin of money. And the whole concept is built on marketability. Commodities could be more or less marketable, and paper bills can be more or less marketable and uh, this evolution explains the origin of money. <laughs> so I'm quoting from that paper of Menger on the origin of money. Uh, he actually published it in English, or at least it appeared in English translation. I'm not suggesting he wrote it in English, it was translated into English. And um, it was published in an English uh, journal on economics in 1892. So I'm just uh, quoting a few sentences from this. There is a phenomenon, this is Menger now, I'm quoting. There is a phenomenon which has, from old, and in a peculiar degree, attracted the attention of social philosophers and practical economists, namely, the fact that certain commodities became universally acceptable as media of exchange. It is obvious even to the most ordinary intelligence that a commodity should be given up by its owner in exchange for another more useful to him. That's very straightforward. Everybody chooses the more useful commodity. But that every 
economizing individual should be ready to accept a certain commodity, even if he does not need it, or if his need for that commodity is already satisfied, in exchange for all other goods which he has brought to the market, while it is nonetheless what he needs that he first consults when acquiring goods, has been considered outright mysterious even by such a distinguished thinker as Savigny. We don't have to worry about Savigny. Uh, the language is a little bit contorted, but I don't mind uh, reading it because it gives you a flavor. What he's saying is, uh, uh, without naming gold, but he's saying that 99% of the people who accept gold in trade, they don't need gold directly. Or if they need gold, they have already covered their needs for gold. <laughs> Yet they accept gold, and that is a mystery to social thinkers, or was at least in those days, perhaps even today. But uh, he thinks that this uh, problem has to be addressed. We want to understand what makes gold acceptable, even if you don't have a direct need uh, for it because you don't have a wife, a wife who wants jewelry, for example, you see, because if, if you have a wife, then there's no mystery involved. <laughs> <laughs> the difficulties of barter would have proved insurmountable obstacles to the progress of trade. Had there been, had there not lain a remedy in the very nature of things, namely the various degrees of marketability of commodities. The differences in this regard are of the highest significance for the theory of money. The failure to recognize this is one of the essential causes of the backward state of monetary theory. The theory of money necessarily presupposes a theory of marketability of goods. The person who wishes to acquire certain definite goods in exchange for his own surpluses is in a more favorable position if he first exchanges his own surpluses for highly marketable goods, even if he doesn't need them per se. Then, through a second exchange, he can more easily acquire the goods he really wants. Men have been led with increasing knowledge of their own individual interest without convention, without legal compulsion, without legislation, nay, even without any regard to the common interest to accept highly marketable goods in exchange for their surpluses. The most highly marketable goods that have thus become, over a considerable period of time, the, general, the generally acceptable media of exchange. End of quote. But we can immediately finish the sentence which he left unfinished, namely gold and silver. 
you see. So you, you don't have to enumerate that gold conducts electricity and heat and it doesn't corrode and then you go through the whole list. These may also be important but very marginal in relation to the fact that gold is the most marketable good there is and silver is the second and if we didn't have these, then there's some other good would be the most marketable. I don't know what, maybe platinum or palladium or, or uh, well we know for instance that the ancient Greeks at one point used iron, but iron in those days was uh, a different thing, it wasn't so common as it is today and uh, uh, it wasn't very successful either, it was just a, a good try. And then they tried copper, and copper was far more successful than iron as money, but even that was not satisfactory, it wasn't the most marketable because it fluctuated too much, which, which uh, made it less uh, desirable. So we don't have to go any further than saying most marketable commodity. That answers the question. Uh, if you want to research it further, nobody's stopping you, but from an economic point of view, to build a monetary theory, you don't have to go any further than that. <laughs> so, the most marketable good that through the evolution described by Menger has ultimately became, become the generally acceptable medium of exchange is gold. In the bill market an analogous evolution, this hasn't been worked out by Menger or by anybody else to my knowledge, but it could be worked out in the same way as you did it for commodity, you work it out for paper. So there was an evolution in the marketability of the various bills, real bills circulating in the, uh, in the markets. And um, the uh, most marketable bill, which as we have just discussed, was the Goldsmith's bill. Could be bearer bill, could be uh, no maturity date uh, stated on it became the bank note and this could have been done without committing any fraud and I just want to nail this down I'm not saying it was done without committing any fraud but in principle there is no reason to make to commit fraud because the whole development is the same as what happened uh, to the precious metals and, uh, and uh, uh, we just as well assume that there is less fraud in the world even if we are making a mistake by underestimating the <laughs> propensity <Gingerfried>. to defraud. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, even though all property construct uh, properly constructed bills showed a high degree of marketability, there was still a difference, namely the uh, some bills had high recognition value, some others had less high recognition value. So 
uh, the market gave a preference to the high uh, name recognition bills and that was the Goldsmith bill. The bill and the uh, Goldsmith became the banker who would issue, who'd, would meet the public's demand for standard denomination banknotes which are easily used in trade. But the important thing is that this did not uh, do away with real bills because what was the asset which the goldsmith or later the banker had to have behind his banknotes? It wasn't government bonds, not even government bills. It was real bills. And the books of the banker was, were open to inspection and people, uh, before they made a large deposit in a bank, could go to the bank and, uh, and uh, tell them that I opened an account on condition that you show me your books. I want to see what assets. And then he, he, he either liked it or didn't. If he didn't like it, he would go to another bank and find the bank uh, which uh, showed him real bills in the portfolio of assets. And that's very important. That it's, it's not so much the bank note, but what's behind it. And the real bill is still there even though it lost out in the competition with the goldsmith bill which became the standard banknote in circulation no maturity date no it, it was payable to the bearer and so on very easy to handle and use for payment. but the real bills which were the bills of all the other traders, didn't suffer by that uh, uh, evolution which promoted the goldsmith buildings because they were very much in demand by the bankers, the honest bankers, very much in demand because they, the real bill embodied two somewhat contradictory properties. On the one hand, they were an earning asset. On the other, they were still very liquid because if the bank had to make a payment unexpectedly, it wasn't exposed to loss if he took this paper or the whole portfolio and sold it on the bill market, you know? I mean, obviously there's always a small loss, but nothing like subprime. <laughs> Professor, yeah. I heard that, uh, I read recently that as recently as the early part of the uh, 19th century, sound, even under a fractional reserve banking system, all right, even under a fractional reserve banking system, that sound banking was based on bills of exchange. B bills of exchange. That no. they had, they had bills. That no. that banks, that commercial banks in the United States, it was it was unsound banking to hold mortgages yeah. as your portfolio. It was because it was they were borrowing short to lend long. 
That's and they, they were illiquid. And bills of exchange were not illiquid. That's they knew that they could go and take this to another bank and cash out and get something for it and meet their obligations. Yeah. And I carried further. Not only that the real bills were more liquid, but real bills were <coughs> maturing into gold. So actually, it's a good thing you brought it up because I, I want to talk about this a little. Uh, the uh, uh, fractional reserve banking is usually uh, used in a derogatory way, which is probably right. I'm not going to comment on that. But <laughs> when it applies to the real bill, it's a misnomer because. Uh, what is the at issue is what kind of assets the bank is using to cover its liabilities. Now, when you say fractional reserve, it sounds as if the bank covers some of its liabilities with assets and some of it leaves uncovered. But that's not the case at all. In the case of the bank we are talking about here, which evolved out of the business of the goldsmith, is very, very different. Because the, go the goldsmith covered some of the liabilities with cash gold assets, such as gold coins or even gold dust, or something which could be made into money on relatively short notice. And the rest was covered by uh, real bills maturing into gold by virtue of that process that the goods underlying goods are in high demand and they are going to be bought by the ultimate consumer in 91 days at which time the uh, consumer would relinquish his gold coin which uh, so even without selling the uh, real bills in the bill market, the goldsmith, if he could wait a couple of weeks, the gold coins will roll in because these bills mature. And, and that's not fractional uh, coverage, that's full coverage, uh, but there is a time element involved and if the pressure is great and you need the cash right away, then the uh, uh, goldsmith would take these real bills on other traders' uh, uh, merchandise and sell it in the bill market for whatever they will fetch. And he was fairly certain, and we can agree uh, with this, that the risk of a huge loss was uh, was not there. He can sell it because there will be a need. Well, we know what the need for these real bills are. We spent quite a lot of time together here. Th that uh, some seasonal merchants, uh, when they are going out of their high season, they have a pile of uh, gold coins which they would like to invest, and there is no better investment than buying the paper other merchants which are presently in their high season or going into their high season and, and many other situations. So that demand is very real and therefore 
uh, it's not like selling bonds when you have to sell bills of other merchants. Yes? Can you I think you can calculate this loss if the bill matures in 12 days and it's how many pennies per day and he sells it 12 days early, that's all the loss he's taking. So the loss is minuscule, never mind huge, never mind even significant. So I think that's wonderful. Yeah. So um, I think this is all very reasonable uh, and, uh, and uh, we can accept that that's the way the evolution actually took place. <clears throat> You're going to okay. get into the origins of fractional reserve banking? Are you going to explore that or not? Um, uh, or how we, we, we will talk yes, about yes, this. Because what you see, the, pre the premise of banking, that, that you're, you're matching maturities. Well, that's, that's right. That's the banker's that, business. So if you well, it's, it's one part of it. That's not everything. Yeah. But because, starting out. Because, because uh, liquidity or marketability of the paper is probably even more important. Well, no, I, I wouldn't say which is more important. They're both very important equally. Matching maturities as you suggest on the one hand and uh, making sure that the assets backing the circulation are liquid enough that in case of emergency they can be thrown in the market without major dislocation, causing major dislocation in the market. Mm -hmm. This is very important and that's what Karl Menger is talking about. But that, that operation was in place prior to the, you know, it, it extended into fractional reserve banking mm -hmm. and that's how you, you the dishonesty crept, you know, it, it, I don't think there was a one event that marked the break between honest banking and dishonest banking yeah. or equating fractional reserve banking to yeah. dishonest banking. Yeah. Or was there? Was there, well, a, we'll see if was there an evening when our cloth merchant <laughs> <laughs> over a pint of ale <laughs> had an insight and went to see his yeah. friend at the discount house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, gold backing was dollar for dollar originally, and when the bankers felt that there wouldn't be calls for those, they could extend the maturities. They would, they would go for, go to oh. borrowing short and lending long. Well, you see, there are several. What you say is all valid, but. There are several problems involved, and this is all stuff, an and you've got to separate. Yeah. But you say matching maturities, this sounds that once you take care of that, everything is fine, but I, it I, isn't. I know, yeah. I know, but the impression. Mm -hmm. Because this 91 day keeps coming back, no matter what you, uh, what you do or how you package it or want to try to uh, pass it on, the fact is that Believe me, and believe Manger, and believe Adam Smith, a lot of people try to match maturities and put bills into circulation which mature in 180 days, or 360 days, or whatever, more than 91 days. And they failed. The market rejects them. And that's a fact. 
you like it or not, it's, you, this is something we cannot change. Bills which mature in 91 days, if they are not fraudulently constructed, and those goods exist and move, that's also important, that you can't um, uh, stop the movement by speculating that the price of wheat is going to go up, so I'm going to arrest the movement of wheat and still issue those bills. I am the miller and I know the price of wheat is going to go up so I'm not uh, grinding the wheat into flour because I want to store them and sell them. at So you know they tried that and they tried every trick in the book and it failed and uh, the most often tried trick, trick was to exceed the 91 days and they couldn't because that is an important number it's three months 13 weeks one quarter of the year and the change of the seasons is involved and that's very important. Seasonality of business has its stamp on the whole market. So that's uh, so matching maturities is important. But we are talking about commercial banking which uh, restricts the banking assets to real bills. Now there's investment banking, you know, where you uh, issue bonds and make investments and so on. Uh, also, honest to goodness, business and matching maturities is all important. But it's a different problem. So, you know, you really have to separate the various problems and look at them uh, one by one. and. Uh, and uh, these uh, two stand out for our purposes, namely uh, the uh, liquidity or marketability of the paper which is used uh, on the one hand and the, uh, uh, what was the other? <laughs> the, uh, 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 that the, this is an earning asset which, which uh, the bill, real bill, is an earning asset which uh, has a demand and, and uh, in case of uh, emergency the, the banker can, uh, can get the cash he wants to pay out to his customers. Okay? Yeah. Are, are, we on, are we on schedule for time? Because I had a question I wanted to ask about the discount. Code. Sure, sure. Uh, but I might... Um, because I want to make sure I understand why that was such a profitable business. This sort of leads back to your last lecture, not this one immediately. Okay. I was thinking about it, it didn't quite make sense to me, so I wanted to, may I use the... Sure, don't sure. worry, are we using that board? I don't think we can use that board. Oh, yes, we can. Use that board? I mean, it costs okay. only $45. You got 45 bucks put it on the table. Sure. It's a, that's discounted. That's, di that's a discount. What I was wondering about is if, uh, going back to some of your earlier uh, uh, essays, uh, Professor, you said that the, dis the discount rate can never be higher than the rate of interest. It, it can be the same, but it can never be higher. It right? shouldn't be. Or under normal circumstances. <laughs> so assuming that in the, in the normal market, uh, you have, um, if you're talking a quarterly uh, 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 real bill, 
it would sell for 99.50 for 100 face value and mature at 100. So a 2% annualized rate. So you were saying that a discounter can make a good business by uh, being prepared to uh, offer his gold coin to merchants that needed it at the start of their busy seasons, and then uh, um, uh, for the merchants that had excess gold coin, um, uh, the opposite, buy the, uh, buy the coin issue them a bill. Now for the merchants that had excess coin, assuming the discount house operator is offering this rate, for him to be able to make a profit, he would have to squeeze the, um, the, the merchants who are desperate for gold coin, but he, he would only be able to uh, squeeze them a little bit maybe, uh, so that's about a 3% annualized rate, uh, because he couldn't, he couldn't charge more than the rate of interest. But is the profit that the dis is the reason that the discount house operator can make a good living because he he is able to simply multiply that trade several times uh, and then like let's say for sake of example at the beginning of each quarter let's say he did that twice that would add two percent and then just sat on the real bills that he had bought that would give him a total of four percent and now he's above a rate of interest of three uh, percent now he's a viable business. A viable uh, operation. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that? Am I understanding the math behind it? And, and of course, uh, more time. Are you talking about the discount house? Yes. Or discount house? Yes. yes. That's right. Uh, yeah. The main business, the mainstay of the business, is to buy the bills, and if he can pass them on at a profit, so much the better. But if he cannot, we can still collect the rate of interest. But that's not an absolute, not the rate of this country, right. which is an income. And uh, it's a minimum income. But uh, given uh, fortuitous circumstances, he can improve on that because uh, if he sells the bill before they mature, then obviously he, do, he will do better than just the bare minimum of the discount rate. Yeah. Now, the topic of the relationship between this country and industry is a difficult topic. So let's not uh, trivialize this. We would have to study it very carefully, and it's not part of our present right. job. But you are quite right, the uh, discount rate has uh, an upper limit. So you have to visualize the situation under what circumstances would the discount rate try to rise. And as it gets closer and closer to the rate of interest, the stability is evaporating. This is very similar to what happens in our day and age to the yield curve. Now a normal yield curve is a rising curve. But under certain pathological circumstances it becomes distorted. It goes up first and then starts falling. But this transition from a normal to an inverted yield curve is a revolutionary process. It involves a lot of instability. So corresponding to that, 
is the interplay between the discount. You know, there, there will be money flowing from the bond market to the bill market and back, and nobody knows what's happening, so a lot of speculation. But if the discount rate keeps a safe distance below the rate of interest, then things will be stable and no speculation will uh, generate uncertainty. And that's the idea. And, uh, and uh, it would lead us too far uh, to investigate what would make this. But I will mention that. And I might as well give you the word, the catchword for that. This is called, uh, at least I call it, and uh, uh, some people may have taken over from me the, uh, I call it illicit arbitrage. You see, there is an arbitrage opportunity because you can buy the uh, uh, you can buy the bill and sell the bond. So there are two markets, bill market, bond market. And that's a normal relationship, interest rate, discount rate. And then uh, smart operators come along and they say, gosh, the interest rate is so much higher, so I just borrow money in the bill market, which means sell the bill, and uh, buy the bond. <laughs> Who would do that? And pocket the difference. <laughs> Who would do that? Who would be that dirty? fellow who would do such a nasty thing Somebody and lots work. of that because they say that's really legitimate arbitrage if you have two markets and we buy in one market cheaper and turn around and sell it at a higher price than the other that's what the name of the game is you do arbitrage period but that particular arbitrage is illicit because because uh, and the word, uh, Adam Smith's word, social circulating capital, is an admirable one because it suggests that the ownership for the bill market and also the goods which form part and parcel of the uh, social circulating uh, capital is social, it's owned socially. So you are trying a risky business and if you lose then you say okay that's for society to pay the losses you see so there should be legislation and true enough there was no legislation of allowing the uh, arbitrage between the bond market with the higher interest rate and there was legislation outlawing. There was no legislation. No, okay, no legislation. Right. And and if we reintroduce a gold standard after the collapse of the dollar, and uh, you know, take care of various uh, uh, bad people, punish them, and so we also have to make sure that they don't repeat that arbitrage. And uh, this is basically, if you think of it, and I think I'm running out of time, but if you think of it, this so-called illicit interest arbitrage is nothing but borrowing short lending. and turning around and lending the money long. That's what it is, right? You sell the bill and buy the bond. 
and pocket the difference. But wouldn't it be enough to? Um, oh, sorry. Never mind. I answered my question. Just, just think it over. That's what it is. So, if you outlaw illicit interest arbitrage, you have outlawed uh, the the uh, borrowing short lending yes. loan. Uh, it's, it's the same thing, but different forms. It would appear in this situation, in this disguise, or the situation, different disguise, but it's all the same. People trying to shove their losses to the public at large. That's it. That's the name of the game. That's the name of the game. That's the name of, That's the, the, game. Name of the game. And then you dress it up and yeah. try to justify that this is just good economics. Yes, spreading the you risk. Know? You know? But it's not. Yeah. And it should be outlawed, and it was, not, uh, no, I, I wouldn't go that far saying that in no country anywhere ever was it outlawed because there might have been some obscure little country like Andorra in, or, or... Uh, and you'll find out on the internet next week. <laughs> <laughs> but to my knowledge it was never on outlawed, which it should have been and it should be if we are going into that new situation. They, uh, in other words, the boogeyman is not, uh, is not the fractional reserve yeah. banking, because, well, it could be, it could be, but in the scenario which we are discussing here, it's not. Because it's not fractional reserve, it's He's full reserve. On, on behalf of bankers this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Honest banking. So the real boogeyman is yeah. borrowing short lending long or uh, illicit interest arbitrage. It's wonderful. But as long as a discounter, as you were saying, if discounters spring up in the wake of a paper money collapse, as long as they deal only in real bills and attempt as best they can to make a market in them and shave off maybe a quarter point or even 10 basis points to the sell of each trade, they actually could do much better than 4% return on their capital. They could do 6, 8, 12%. As well, it would just depend on their turnover, but as long as they didn't try and influence the actual interest rate curve and obeyed it and kept their, well, I mean, the, the, no merchant would agree to, to borrow on term, I mean, uh, to uh, uh, issue a real bill on any terms worse than that. As long as they did that, they'd be completely moral and they would not be damaging the system and they'd be doing a great favor to the financial yes. system. All right. Very good. Now, any questions, comments? I'd just like to address what uh, Nathan okay. was saying. 2% doesn't sound like much, but put in a historical perspective, 100 years ago there was no inflation, there was no easy speculation to make 10, 15, 20, 30%. That was pretty good. Yeah. And, and Steady actually, money. there was a historic deflation, or if I dare use the word, decrease in prices. So this 2% was pretty nice money for a guy who sat at a desk and didn't do very much. And if he had plenty of capital, Money. Oh, but no, I, I disagree. That's what confused me at first. I thought, yeah, that would be a great business. But then I realized, but you don't need to be a business to do that. You just put your own money in a real bill and you make 2%. And that's, you know, if, if you're trying to be a businessman, then you have to be earning higher, as you pointed out in Hungary last uh, summer, you have to be earning higher than the rate of the government bonds or why in the world would you be in business? And so that's why I was confused about why, was, how is it that you would make a return greater than that? Uh, and then it occurred to me, it must be through turnover of the... Uh, of the real bills. 
I think I read somewhere Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, a commentator said Ebenezer Scrooge was a, a bill discounter. <laughs> people don't know what he did for a living, but it's a whole all right. Well, we adjourn, and in half an hour's time, uh, we have the uh, good fortune of listening to uh, Dario's presentation. The title is still a secret, is it? Well, it gives me some leeway. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I just want to say this: that Professor Fecte is really a showman. I mean, when you're in show business, you leave always wanting people to come back. And he has now left us on the seat of the pants wondering <laughs> what does that banker do? At what point did he do it? And I myself am interested too, so I'll hopefully keep it concise. <laughs> ah, just wait, because I could make a stage show here and have somebody play the uh, weaver, somebody the spinner. <laughs> You may be the end up as the as school. <laughs> <That'll be good. laughs> <laughs>